Hello and welcome to another Miko Paled hosted webinar. I am your host, Jamil, and I'm going to be introducing today's event. The name of today's webinar is Should Progressive Support the Biden-Harris Ticket? I will be facilitating the Q&A portion um, after the panel's discussion wraps up. So as, as you probably know, we're doing something a bit different for this webinar. We're going to be uh, sort of dipping our feet into some non-Palestine related subjects, although, you know, um, this is Miko Pellet. We can't leave Palestine completely out. So um, rest assured that it will definitely come up in the discussion within the context of uh, this topic. So, um, you know, about a month and a half ago, we put out a call to our network, uh, Miko's audience, some friends of ours as well. Um, and, and basically, we're, we were looking for people living in the U.S. who are under the age of 30 on the younger side. Um, to, and we wanted to assemble a panel of just regular people who, you know, broadly speaking, lean to the left side of the political spectrum. And, and that's kind of why we're using the term progressive as a shorthand um, for the purposes of this event. Obviously, there's plenty more nuance to, to each uh, panelist's, uh, you know, uh, identification in terms of politics. But we wanted to get to the heart of the question about the importance or maybe even the necessity, we'll see, of uh, progressives to be casting a vote for the Biden-Harris ticket in this upcoming presidential election. And, and you know, we're not really taking a side in any of this. We simply want to hear directly from a small sampling of, of this generation of progressive Americans about how they are thinking going into this election. So we knew the basic format was we wanted two people who are leaning towards or certainly voting for Biden, and then two two folks who are leaning towards or certainly not casting a vote at all, or maybe even casting a vote for a third party candidate. So after speaking with uh, several people in our circles and, and with people who inquired about participating in the webinar, we basically were able to assemble a really fantastic panel. These are all people under the age of 30, all are involved in, um, in or grassroots organizing in one form or another, and all have opinions about this upcoming election. Um, they also have opinions about the Democratic nominee and kind of the fate of the country, you know, post-November. So uh, Miko is going to be engaging the panel in discussion, but um, we're, ma we're mainly going to be focusing on three important topics in relation to, the, to this election and, and the climate right now. Um, one, one being Palestine, one, the second being immigration, and the third being uh, the environment and climate. Um, and I want to thank our panel so much for their time and participation today. We're, we're really looking forward to your insights and your analysis, and um, I'd like to introduce that panel to you all right now. We have, uh, first off, Jasmine Collins from Syracuse. We have uh, Eitan Paled from San Diego. We have Yara Akka from Boston. And we have Annalise Friedman from Las Vegas. And of course, we, we have author and activist Miko Paled as today's host. So um, I want to also thank the audience out there. Thank you for joining us for this live, uh, an important discussion. We're going to be streaming this to Miko's Facebook page. So if you want to share the event with people who didn't register, just uh, send them to Miko's Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash Miko official. They can watch the live stream. It'll also be available immediately right after this event. And we also make our webinars available to rewatch along with further reading and citations at mikopella.com. You can also pick up uh, either of Miko's books at mikopella.com. I uh, highly encourage you to do so. 
and we will basically be beginning the Q&A after the discussion wraps up, maybe 60 minutes, 80 minutes, something like that. But at any point in the, in the conversation, you can hit that Q&A button in your Zoom toolbar at the bottom of the screen to submit your question. And yeah, I think I covered everything. We are ready to start here. So I'm going to pass the reins over to Miko. Thank you, Jamil. <clears throat> and thanks, Michael, for your work behind the scenes there. I see the chat's already uh, going on. Um, thank you again to the panelists, Jasmine and Aliciara and Eitan. Eitan is my son, in case anybody um, didn't know that. And um, one thing I want to mention that just came up uh, before we actually start with our, uh, our main topics for discussion is the Zoom event that's about to start later on today, pretty much after we finish. Uh, that was uh, scheduled uh, to host um, um, Laila Khaled, the Palestinian, well-known Palestinian uh, Laila Khaled, who has quite a history. Um, and Zoom decided to uh, cancel it. And so I think it's important for as many people as possible to go ahead and sign up for this event to make sure in any way possible that uh, Zoom does not have the right to, um, to censor people if they, don't like, uh, if they don't like them. So I encourage everybody to look into that. It's Laila Khaled and it's, uh, it's a Zoom event coming up um, later on today. Um, the topics, like you heard, are gonna be um, Palestine first and then um, immigration and the environment. And as, as we listen to the news, as we, you know, whether it's a radio, print, or TV, the conversation is mostly Biden or Trump. Um, but there's another really, really important conversation that I think should be going on, and actually is going on among progressives. Is it more important to vote for Biden so that we could get, get out of um, get rid of Trump, or is it more important to just vote our conscience, which may be a write-in or maybe? A third party and that's really what we're going to be talking about and I think each and one of these issues is going to um, you know is relevant to this conversation now on the issue of Palestine I don't think anybody has any doubt that uh, Joe Biden stands behind Israel 110 percent he's declared himself to be a Zionist and you know he go, went all out as did his running mate um, and the Democratic Party establishment supports israel i mean even their platform that you know you can't even get anything anything serious about palestine on the democratic party platform and that's seriously troubling for certainly for palestinians for people who believe in justice and freedom and who care about uh the issue of palestine and the issues that relate to it and so um i thought we would start by uh discussing that and um see what you what the panel has to say about that particular issue first so maybe Yara, I'll start with you and kind of go around one at a time. So go ahead. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Yara and I'm recently graduated from UMass Amherst. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about the current democratic ticket, especially in relation to Palestine. Um, I think that it's really no secret, as you said, Miko, that the democratic party has really stood behind Israel 110%, um, which I have issues with. I fully believe in the rights for all Palestinians. Um, I believe in their, you know, right to the land. I believe in the existence of a state of Palestine. And for 
me to look at these candidates' track records is, you know, troubling. Obama, with Joe Biden as his vice president, signed the largest military aid deal to Israel in history. It was $38 billion that could never be reneged upon. And Kamala Harris, as recently as this and last month, has pledged unconditional support for Israel, regardless of their political moves, um, which in reality are human rights violations through annexation of Palestinian land and violations of international law. So I'm definitely concerned about the Democratic Ticket's approach, but I think it's also you know, concerning what Trump has done so far as well. I mean, moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem was a huge step in the wrong direction, I believe. And he has become very close with Netanyahu, which again is really troubling for me. And in regards to Palestine, it is really difficult to say that one ticket is, you know, behaving better than the other. Um, I have yet to see Biden and Harris advocate for Palestinians or to even say that they deserve rights or to say that Israel has actually violated international law, which it has. Um, and to me, that's spineless um, to not even acknowledge that Israel has broken international law when it so clearly has through annexation. Um, and for me, like it's my entire like philosophy on voting right now is basically is basically that it is a privilege and that more and more people are losing that privilege through disenfranchisement and many other causes. And so for people who either are Palestinian or identify with the cause, I find it really hard to tell people in relation to Palestine how they should vote. Um, and I also think it's troubling when people with privilege who aren't as invested in that cause are telling people how sh they should vote in relation to that. Um, I think that it's really hard for someone with privilege to really understand what it's like for someone who is oppressed in that way. Um, and so to kind of, you know, tell people what they should do when they're not as effective doesn't sit right with me. Um, but in relation to Biden-Harris um, and Palestine, I have a lot of concerns. And so far from what they've said, none of them have been alleviated at all. And so, I mean, I would, I would go even further. I mean, the, the way I see Palestine, um, Israel itself is a violation of international law. It's not just that Israel violates international law, it's actual existence is a violation of international law because it's an apartheid regime, it's engaged in genocide and ethnic cleansing. These are three, you know, these are three very well-defined laws uh, that Israel violates by its very existence. Um, but I want to push you just a little bit more. So what would you tell people um, who are asking you, who should we vote for? I mean, is it better to have Biden there and maybe the people that he brings in will alleviate the situation? Maybe he brings people in that will help bring about change. Um, go ahead and talk a little bit about that, please. 
Sure. Um, I personally have trouble telling people how they should vote, um, to be truthful. I don't necessarily have faith that they would bring in people into their cabinet in relation to Palestine specifically on this specific topic. I have a lot of trouble believing that they would bring in people on their cabinet that would be remotely supportive to the Palestinian cause. Um, if they, if Kamala Harris, for example, is saying that regardless of any political moves that Israel makes, she will extend unwavering support to them. I really don't believe that, you know, they will bring anyone into the cabinet or anyone and like bring in a secretary of state that will support Palestine and Palestinians. Um, but I think there's a lot more that goes into voting than one topic. So, I mean, when it comes to Palestine, I understand if people are deterred from voting from the Biden-Harris ticket because of that. For me, there's a lot more that goes into voting than that. So I can't tell someone personally, you should vote this way or that way based on one isolated, well, not isolated, but based on one specific topic. Okay, Jasmine, you wanna tell us what you think? So I just wanna like reiterate a lot of what Yara said and a lot of what Miko said, um, like the, the state of democratic policy on Palestine is worthy of like, it's, it's absolutely unacceptable. It's inexcusable. Um, the way that the Democratic Party, both its voters and its leaders, um, have, you know, aided and abetted uh, everything from war crimes to, uh, you know, outright ethnic cleansing in Palestine, absolutely unacceptable. Um, this is one of the most important issues, or it should be one of the most important issues for Americans, period. Um, I, you know, I looked over, uh, you know, Biden's campaign website, and I looked at, you know, his policies um, that relate to Israel. Um, he, uh, you know, he gives a sort of standard uh, rhetoric, you know, it's important for us to honor the dignity of Palestinians, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't really have, palace, he doesn't really have policies to back up this idea that Palestinians actually deserve human dignity. Um, he, I believe he stated that he wants to restore U.S. aid to Israel because uh, Donald Trump ended up cutting a lot of aid to Israel, or excuse me, um, restore U.S. aid to Palestine because Donald Trump ended up cutting um, U.S. aid to Palestine, um, to Palestinians in Palestine in particular. Um, that's not nearly enough. It's, it's comically inadequate as a fix for, you know, the human rights atrocities that continue to happen in Israel. Um, and in the occupied West Bank and Gaza, um, you know, I, I think that Yara makes a really good point when she says that voting isn't about, you know, one issue. There are so many other really, really, really important issues um, that we need to think about in this election. You know, there are so many other, you know, human rights atrocities that Americans need to end yesterday. Um, but the thing is, like, this is the framework through which I view my, my um, voting. Uh, you know, I, I live in the state of New York, and New York is a solidly blue state, and we all know that New York 
is gonna go blue this year. Um, we all know that all of New York's electors are going to pledge Biden. Um, and as long as they're not, you know, faithless electors, they'll, they'll vote for Biden. Um, so I, you know, the way I see it, like I have a lot of freedom, like a lot of progressives in this state, like a lot of progressives in blue, like solidly blue and solidly red states around the country to use my vote to send a message. I'm not sure how effective, um, you know, my voting would be in sending any sort of message, you know, to the country, to the country's leaders, you know, to its voters, et cetera. Um, but I'm willing to give it a shot. You know, I will likely be voting for Howie Hawkins um, in November. And part of the reason why I'll be voting for Holly, Howie Hawkins is because Hawkins and the Green Party generally, um, you know, they have long been behind uh, the BDS movement. Perhaps they're not, um, perhaps they don't support the BDS movement with as much fervor as they should, um, you know, but they are behind BDS and they are one of the few parties in the United States that actually recognizes that, um, you know, Israel's human rights atrocities cannot continue, period. Um, so, you know, that that's my whole, that's my argument. You know, if, if the question is, you know, how should progressives vote if they want to honor their responsibility to the Palestinian people? Um, I would say it depends on where you live. The, the United States is not really a democracy. And I don't say that, you know, simply because I'm angry and, you know, I, I, that's something you often hear from, you know, lots of disgruntled American voters. Like, genuinely, the U.S. president is not elected through any sort of popular vote. Um, you know, and because the U.S. president isn't elected through a popular vote, because of the particular way that our electoral system works, I think um, progressives have some wiggle room, particularly when they live in deeply red or deeply blue states, um, to use their votes for creative purposes, um, including like, you know, sending a message on Palestine. Again, I'm not sure how effective this would be, but I think it's worth a shot, you know. I, so I think progressives and deeply blue and deeply red states should consider, um, you know, not voting for the Biden ticket, particularly if they have, you know, really, really big, um, you know, ethical qualms about voting Biden-Harris. You know, you mentioned the uh, Biden site. I, I read what, what the Biden website talks, you know, says about Palestine. It doesn't say anything about Palestine, but it says about Israel. And it's all about uh, supporting the Jewish state, the Jewish people, the Jewish values. And I thought, what? What's, what does that even mean? What does that mean? All Jewish people have the same values. I mean, the, the, what is the Jewish state? I mean, even even people who are who do live in the so-called Jewish state aren't really quite sure what the Jewish state is and what it means if it has any legitimacy. But it kind of broad strokes the whole issue, as though to appease anybody who might come up with anything. And you're right. I think the the Green Party, the USA, the U.S. Green Party, has the most progressive platform on Palestine of any Green Party in the world, actually. And they do support BDS and, and the call for single democracy over all of Palestine. And, you know, you're both right. I mean, it is, it's more than just about one issue, which is why we're, we're going to be talking about all these different issues. Um, Elise, you want to go next? Sure. So, um, I agree mostly with what everyone thus far has said. I think that it's important to note that members of the ruling class in the United States 
can't not be Zionists. Um, the ruling class here is like a very effective machine and whether Democrats or Republican, like Zionism is a relevant and necessary part of their tendency. And going back to Joe Biden and his behavior on Israel, he does like the typical like pandering to like a lot of Jewish people, like he'll don like a yarmulke and do all of this stuff. And whenever he's like pressed on the issue of Palestine, he equates it to potentially being anti-Semitic, which is like inherently like another problem in and of itself. Um, I don't think that, I don't think that the Biden-Harris um, dichotomy is going to bring a lot of very relevant change in terms of progression of rights for Palestine or progression towards like the destruction of Israel, uh, obviously. Harris and her husband are huge Zionists. They're huge Zionist donors, and they have been for a very long time. Um, but like everyone has said, obviously voting is um, not not relevant to one subject. There are various different like venues and things that must be considered when talking about this stuff. But objectively, I think like it boils down to the fact that the ruling elite in the United States must be Zionist. They must be. So the notion that we can essentially or potentially push them out of this Zionist like hole that they're in by voting within the two major parties, I, I'm kind of like apathetic towards it. Uh, as, you, as you were saying that, I was thinking of two things. Um, one is, I don't know if you guys know, I'm, I'm sure you guys know this, but of course this happened a long time before you were born. There used to be this country called South Vietnam. And, um, you know, America supported South Vietnam, American president supported, supported American politicians supported South Vietnam. It was, it was uh, categorized as our most important uh, ally in Southeast Asia. And even in the early 70s, uh, I believe even Gerald Ford, when he was president, said, we will never forsake our most important ally in Southeast Asia. And of course, a few years after that, there was no more South Vietnam. Um, so that just kind of shows that even though we, 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 we assume one day that everybody and everything is going in a certain direction, you know, there is perhaps uh, the possibility of change and there is the possibility of... of um, of moving this and it was very similar in South Africa too. I mean the United States was certainly the last um, one of the last if not the last country to support boycotting apartheid South Africa and um, and it was a tough tough struggle and eventually of course it did happen. So there is a movement um, and, and, I, and I agree with everything the three of you said so far but as I look back at these two examples you know that that does show us um, that perhaps there is there is room to to um, to hope for, to expect, to to bring about uh, some change and some movement. Eitan, why don't you go ahead? Hi, everyone. Uh, as mentioned, my name is Eitan. Uh, I I think there's a lot of really good points that have been made thus far. And I guess before I get into the specifics of kind of what's been said and my take on on Palestine and and this generally is, I'll maybe just describe kind of the framework with which I'm looking at this election. Um, generally, right, when we vote in November, we're not, it's not a wand that we're waving, like it's not magic. Um, 
I can't, I don't think that we can expect great, a huge change, like a lot of these important issues that we've talked about so far and we'll talk about to be resolved just by voting. That's going to come by the day in, day out organizing that where we're pushing our elected officials to change our systems, to start to see a world that we want to see in this case um, for Palestinians to live with, with equal rights and dignity. Um, and then kind of within that framework, we have this reality that in January, kind of on the inauguration day, uh, it'll either be Donald Trump or it'll be Joe Biden that will be taking the White House. And so just kind of like accepting that reality and working within that. Um, if Joe Biden is in office, Joe Biden's a politician, as is Kamala Harris, we've seen them shift more progressively on a number of issues. There is a chance that progressive issues will be heard and that they'll um, enact policies in line with those productive issues. They're, they're going to be pre presented with a slew of them, including Palestine, immigration issues, climate, um, foreign policy, generally wars, etc. Um, some of those will be compromised away, some of those won't, but there is a chance that some of them can be put forth, whereas with a Donald Trump presidency, that chance just simply does not exist for progressive issues. Um, so on the, the issue of Palestine, again, I agree with what's been said. If you look at uh, the website, you know, Joe Biden's website, if you look at his and Kamala Harris's history, um, they're kind of in, in practice, it's not all that different when it comes to creating a world where there are equal rights for Palestinians um, and injustice for, for all the wrongs that have, have been done to them thus far. But what I think does make a small difference is one, kind of my point earlier, that if we organize hard enough and a bill like um, Representative McCollum's bill comes to the White House desk for them to sign, that would make a relatively small change for Palestinians, but it's, it's not insignificant regarding the, the detention of Palestinian kids, that the Biden-Harris administration would sign that. The Trump administration would likely not sign that. Um, so again, it's, it's, this is not a, a huge change that is going to free Palestine with the stroke of a pen, but it's a small difference that will make uh, the lives of folks slightly different. If we look at the way um, the foreign policy and the foreign aid budget have been put forth the last couple of years, um, the Trump administration has tried and been relatively successful in slicing aid to Palestine, as has already been mentioned, aid to, to UNRWA, which is, again, not the, the most wonderful solution for Palestinians, but it does provide important um, resources for a lot of Palestinian kids, namely schools and education. Um, if we look at kind of in practice on the ground, I remember my first trip to, to Palestine after um, Trump took office. And it was, this was actually right around the time that there were conversations about moving the capital from, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And I, at the time, I was very much of the sense of, okay, like now we're just calling a spade a spade. President Obama signed the, the biggest, you know, aid package to, to Israel you know, in history, um, not, this isn't, this isn't changing much. We're just more saying what, you know, we're just, we're doing things that are more in line with, um, or we're saying things that are more in line with our actions historically as a, as a country. But then I got on the ground and I was, I was meeting with, with some, some friends, some activists in, in Hebron and Nabi Saleh, et cetera, and just kind of hearing like, did it make a difference for them on the ground? Is it looking the same? Um, obviously the occupation still exists, but there were actually small nuanced differences that because the soldiers on the ground were so much more emboldened by the fact that they had this kind of Trump Netanyahu support. And one of those small changes was that they were moving away from using more tear gas, uh, shock grenades to disperse nonviolent protests and, and you know, those that, that were happening every week at the time. And they were starting to use live ammunition more often because they were more emboldened to do so. Now, those are two horrible options to choose from, but that is a small thing that is making a huge difference in the life of people. I would much rather get tear gas shot at me than get shot at with live ammunition while protesting. 
Um, and so again, these are, these are, I think, some, some small examples that um, where, where, where Trump has really moved us in the wrong direction and so that we need to do everything we can to get him out of power so that we have a chance to enact the policies um, that, that we want to see put forth, you know, the, the, the tenets of BDS adhere to, et cetera, uh, because we just don't stand that chance with Trump in office. And then kind of one other point that's not necessarily about Palestine that I'll make with regard to whether or not you're, you're voting in a blue state or a red state or a swing state, um, I think the reality is that Trump has and continues to exhibit pretty fascist tendencies. And there was actually, uh, I think the, it might have been the Washington Post put out an article recently that was a handful of experts on, um, I think it was like presidential transition or transition of power, I forget the exact name, where they ran a couple of scenarios um, and you know, what would happen in November based off of the election results. And in almost every single one of those, um, of those kind of outcomes that they're playing with, they all ended in a constitutional crisis with the exception of the one scenario where Biden wins by a landslide. So that's why I think it's so important that even for folks like me, I'm registered to vote in California, to vote for Biden really as a vote against Trump, even if you don't agree with, with many of their policies, um, in order to mitigate the, that scenario happening. You know, you mentioned a couple of things, uh, like ending the aid to, to UNRWA, the United Nations uh, agency that takes care of Palestinian refugees. Um, that certainly was a big blow, and it was not just a big blow, but it was part of a, a larger policy shift, which does not recognize the existence of the refugees and the rights of refugees anymore. So the claim that came with that um, was that really the only refugees that have any rights to be recognized as refugees from Palestine are the ones who actually lived the expulsion and not their descendants, which is of course not true according to international law, they, their descendants have uh, refugee rights and the rights to return and be compensated as well. So that's a big, that, that, is, a, that is part of a very, very big policy shift. Um, and it's something that is exactly what Israel wants. It wants to completely erase the, the refugees who pretend that there are no refugees and the refugees that exist have no rights and have nothing to do with Israel. Um, so, and, and also getting rid of, they didn't only stop the payments, whatever small payments they were making to the Palestinian Authority, but also um, closed down the Palestinian um, mission in Washington, D.C. So there is no Palestinian mission anymore in the United States officially. So like you said, all these little things are small things. They're not, you know, but they represent a bigger, a bigger picture. And I think also you mentioned the, um, um, the bill that's been, that's been in Congress for a few years now um, to, uh, to protect um, Palestinian children who are being, who are being detained, the, deten the whole issue of the detention of Palestinian children, which is incredibly important and it's a very, very good bill. We may well see at least uh, three, four more members, uh, if they get elected, people like Cory Bush and, and Jamal Bauman and others maybe, who will be supporting this. And so there may be a push in that direction. And again, uh, perhaps, perhaps there's a possibility there uh, to bring about change as well. So it's, it's, there's lots of little things happening that, you know, contribute to this conversation. Um, anything else anybody wants to say about Palestine before I move on to the next, uh, next issue? I'd just like to ask um, Ethan for uh, the Washington Post article that he was um, describing because I would like to, I'd like to read it. 
Sure. Yeah, I'll um I'll circulate it in in the chat or um or I'll send it out to either uh, Miko or Michael or Jamil or someone so that so it can be circulated after. Also, I think like the uh, just very briefly, I think the topic of like how many votes Joe Biden would have to win uh, for us to avoid a constitutional crisis. Like uh, what what the particular vote count would have to be in November, uh, what the electoral map would have to look like in November um, for us to, uh, for us to potentially, you know, uh, prevent violence, et cetera. That's a really interesting conversation. I'm not sure if this is the forum for that, but very interesting. Definitely. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree. It's, um, it, it's one of those things that, I mean, we can't perfectly, uh, predict it, right? Like, like we don't know what's going to happen. Um, in this particular scenario, in, in the article that I mentioned, they had kind of like insiders, if you will, from like the, high up in the Republican Party, high up in the Democratic Party, and basically said, act as if you would if you were in power based off of this scenario, that scenario. Um, and I don't remember the number of what counts as a landslide, but I think what the kind of my takeaway from it is I want to do everything that I can in order to mitigate that happening. Um, and so in order to do that, one way is, is is to vote for Joe Biden and encourage other folks to to do so. Which you have, which you do quite uh, eloquently, I have to say. Okay, um, let's uh, move on to the next topic, the po topic of immigration and the way uh, not only not only uh, immigrants, uh, undocumented people, um, and generally people of color have been uh, have been treated over. Over the last, we'll focus on on the last four years, but the differences that we're going to see that we may or may not see between a second Trump administration and, a, and an incoming um, Biden administration. And Eitan, you want to start on that one? Uh, yeah, certainly. I, I think we could talk. We, we could probably done a whole webinar on just the issue of immigration and and the nuances and difference and, and the ways that both parties have acted. Um, again, I think we need to look at this in the same framework as it did before, where we acknowledge that right, the, the Obama-Biden administration, they set records in the number of deportations that they did. So it, it speaks to the fact that the system uh, is, is broken and not working well. But during the Obama-Biden administration, there were some, again, small but not insignificant measures that were put forth that made a big difference in the lives of many people. And it's something that during the Trump administration, we have seen policy after policy after policy, just in an onslaught of picking apart of any protection that we have um, for immigrants and refugees in the United States. And again, I, I could go on and on, but I'll just focus on two populations that have been subjected to this, um, this sort of policy onslaught. The first is uh, DACA recipients, and the second is asylum seekers. So on DACA recipients, those that don't know, it's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival. It was a temporary fix that the Obama administration put forth to provide sort of protections uh, and, and, and basic rights for the hundreds of thousands of people in the United States that were brought here as children um, without documentation, grew up in the United States. This is really the only country they've ever lived in. Um, and it provided them with some relief, the ability to enroll in, in universities, uh, to, to get jobs, et cetera, which, which has made a huge difference in the lives of many. And the Trump administration has very intentionally tried to get rid of DACA. Um, which would strip these protections for hundreds of thousands of people, result in the deportation of these folks back to a country that they have never been to because 
under DACA or until DACA, that they likely weren't allowed to leave the country with, the, with, with some exceptions. Um, and so that is, again, I think a really important thing to, to recognize. So that's undocked recipients. The second that I mentioned is asylum seekers. And this is one where we have really, really seen an onslaught of, um, of protections stripped away for folks. I mean, just last month, um, and then kind of throughout the pandemic, what we've seen is the Trump administration has basically used the pandemic as an excuse to close our borders to asylum seekers. Um, they introduced a rule where they wanted to be able to designate people that show up as a potential public health risk, being a health to national security, and therefore being able to turn anyone away from the border at the discretion of the DHS officer who was there deciding whether or not there would be a public health threat, um, which is, is super significant, especially for the folks that are fleeing along the Central America, Mexico, US migration corridor, where there's many, many people fleeing from Honduras, from El Salvador, from Guatemala, um, largely because of the result of policies of, of kind of US intervention historically in the role that we've played and, and, and the rise of gangs there. Um, but these, these are people that are now being denied protection um, that, that we don't have to be denying the protection to. And it's something that the Biden administration has committed to doing. Um, now, again, is, is the vote in November a wave of the wand that is going to fix our whole immigration system, which incarcerates kids, adults, just for arriving and seeking asylum as, as part of the process? Not necessarily. But on the topic of immigration detention, again, a small pilot that the Obama administration put forth was called the Family Case Management Program. This was a, a program that looked at vulnerable asylum-seeking families. When they arrived in the United States, instead of incarcerating them, what it did is it connected them with the resources they need in the communities that they wanted to live and um, gave them the information that they needed in order to proceed with their asylum cases, which are incredibly complex and difficult to navigate, even for someone who's from the United States and speaks English. So for someone where English is your second or third language, it's especially hard. But anyways, this pilot, which provided them with these resources, um, had incredible results at the end. I mean, they were incredibly compliant. It was much cheaper than incarcerating them. And then obviously it's much more humane. Um, this is a program that was cut by the Trump administration. It was, it was enacted in 2015, 2016. I think it was supposed to go on for four or five years. Um, the Obama, or excuse me, the Trump administration just stopped doing it with, without really providing any excuse. Um, and now if we look at the election of, of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, this is something that could then be introduced and scaled up um, across the board and could be the beginning of a change to our system where we're no longer incarcerating people just for seeking asylum in the United States, um, which is huge. And then the fact that the United States was doing that could potentially set an example for the hundred or so other countries in the world that uh, incarcerate children as they try to seek asylum in those countries. So again, I think there's, there's a lot that we could go off of uh, talking about immigration, but just on those two issues, I think there's uh, a really, really compelling reason to, to vote for the, the Biden-Harris ticket, it, it, especially as a vote against the, the Trump ticket. Okay, and I think this is, a, it seems to be this one issue that um, very few people know about in, 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 any, in any kind of detail. So I think it's really, really important to get into that and to understand it better and why this is an important issue and the lives that are at stake and the kids that are, you know, the, the conditions in which children and the numbers as well. Um, could you touch on numbers a little bit, Eitan? Talk about numbers a little bit to give people an idea, a better idea? Yeah, so, um, the, the, I mean, data is sometimes hard to come by on this issue because people that, Sorry, taking a step back. People either cross into the United States in, in one of two ways if they're trying to seek asylum. Um, either at a port of entry where they show up at the port and they say, hello, 
you know, I'd like to seek asylum, Customs and Border Protection processes them, it counts as an apprehension, and they go forth. If they don't enter at the port, they'll enter between the port, swim across the river, through the desert, et cetera. Um, those that are not apprehended by CBP, we don't know those numbers, but there are a number of apprehensions that happen. And so just to give a sense of, of the numbers that I'm going to give. Um, and then they're updated every month on, on the Department of Homeland Security's website. But in fiscal year 2019, so if we look at October 18 to October 2019, there were about 70,000 unaccompanied children that had crossed. Um, and then we're looking into the hundreds of thousands if we start to include adults um, or people that traveled into in a family unit um, arriving in the United States. But all in all, during that fiscal year, we're, we're looking at uh, probably a, about a million um, apprehensions, um, which again, th there are likely others that, that were beyond the apprehensions, but uh, those, those numbers are kind of impossible to, to go by. These are people that are actually tried to cross and were detained. Yes, that were detained. And I say apprehended because those that do cross between the ports of entry, because of a number of other policies that the Trump administration has put, for, put forth, when you arrive at the port of entry, they're forcing people to wait in really, really dangerous parts of Mexico, where some people are saying, no, I, I, I don't want to wait here with my family or by myself because Las Cetas or one of these other cartels is there. So I'm just going to swim across the river, I'm going to cross the desert, and then turn myself in to Border Patrol and then be detained, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is pretty, I think this is pretty horrifying, um, horrifying stuff, horrifying information. Um, let's go, uh, let's see, Jasmine, you want to go next? Sure. Um, I was trying to recall, actually, um, what Biden's position on ICE and what his position on the formation of DHS was um, in the early 2000s. And the reason why I was trying to do this is because, like, I, I think that First of all, it's important for me to acknowledge that I am very sympathetic to a lot of Eaton's points. I Certainly, um, a Biden presidency would be much, much better for migrants um, to the United States than a Trump presidency. And it is absolutely imperative that we ensure that uh, Donald Trump doesn't have an opportunity to separate more families, to incarcerate more children, um, to leave more families homeless in Mexico. Um, to further destabilize um, countries like uh, Guatemala um, and, and Mexico by forcing migrants to sort of remain in a sort of legal limbo in these countries. Um, that said, though, I, I, I honestly don't see a good way out of the current situation that we're in because, you know, I, clearly one of the two major party nominees is going to become president in November, and neither of them is committed to actually dismantling uh, what is a very effective, very violent system for uh, incarcerating and otherwise uh, depriving uh, the human rights of, sorry, uh, de depriving the human rights of migrants. I, you know, I, I think about this a lot, you know, ICE, DHS, these are very new agencies. Um, you know, the United States government did not always handle immigration issues under um, you know, a department with the mission of protecting homeland security, right? The United States used to handle immigration as part of its uh, strategy to deal with labor issues. And there were lots of problems with that. But like part of what happened after 9-11 was that both Democrats and Republicans 
um, supported this push to uh, essentially criminalize migrants just in general, to, to view migrants as uh, almost inherently criminal, criminal. And that is the reason why we have ICE. That is the reason why we have DHS. And that's the reason why um, you know, DHS departments like ICE and uh, Customs and Border Protection are so violent. Um, you know, it's uh, the way that DHS is structured, and in, in particular, the way that ICE and uh, Customs and Border Protection are structured, um, you know, they are very, very well designed to inflict violence on migrants. And so if some president comes along or if some uh, DHS secretary comes along and wants to inflict unbelievable violence on migrants, he can very easily do that simply because of the way that um, our immigration services and agencies at the federal level are designed. Um, so that's a long speech essentially to make this point, which is that like ICE certainly needs to be abolished and DHS needs to be completely reimagined and reorganized. Its mission, you know, in, in protecting homeland security and also handling uh, migrants, that needs to be completely reimagined and reorganized. And uh, Biden is not going to do that work of reimagining, reorganizing DHS. Um, Kamala Harris is not going to do that work. Um, they have, both of those candidates have not, both of those candidates have actually expressed that they, you know, have no interest in, um, they have no interest in sort of joining the movements to uh, abolish ICE and, and to take the abolition of uh, you know, carceral systems for migrants seriously, you know, neither of those candidates has expressed that they want to um, abolish these Gestapo-esque forces um, that quite literally kill children and adults. Um, so like I, I, again, you know, I, I don't really have a solution here, unfortunately. I, beyond simply trying to communicate at the ballot box that you know, there are lots of Americans who understand that, you know, the, the organization of DHS is absolutely unacceptable, you know, and the treatment of migrants and the treatments of Portland protesters is evidence of that. You know, I, beyond trying to communicate at the ballot box that we do not support candidates who are behind ICE, I, I just, I simply don't know what to do. Yeah, by the way, you guys can respond to each other while you're well, this is going on. So if anybody, if you'd like to go back and forth, you're welcome to do that. Um, Yara, why don't you go next? Sure. Um, so I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, Good. <laughs> I, I, it's no secret that, you know, Obama started or, you know, really started to establish a legacy of mass deportations, which Biden was inevitably a part of. And it's also undeniable that Trump ballooned this even more. Um, I work as a volunteer legal assistant with RACIS um, through the Immigrant Protection Project. And especially in the era of COVID, Trump's policies have been like disastrous, could not be more of an understatement. And it, is, it has been so unsafe in these detention facilities already, let alone with COVID, which has spread like wildfire in these facilities. Um, and that is something that I, 
I don't believe that Biden would do quite as much damage as Trump is doing in these facilities. And especially, I mean, COVID aside, thinking about just the trauma that is happening in these facilities of kids being kept in cages, of being separated from their families for extended periods of time, especially at such young ages, like the amount of trauma that is being inflicted on these children. And it's not just the separation. These children are being abused in these facilities, in these detention centers. Um, there is so much physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse being reported. And that can't be ignored, I believe. The trauma is just so massive, has such detrimental effects on development afterwards of the ability to you know, not just leave a dangerous situation from these countries that these people are coming from, but also then to, it really diminishes the ability to, you know, come to a new place to thrive. There is no ability to thrive when that kind of trauma is being inflicted. Um, and that for me has been compelling with Biden-Harris and that I don't believe, like I agree with Ethan, like I don't think that voting for them is going to make these issues go away. I completely agree with Jasmine that ICE needs to be abolished and DHS needs to be completely reimagined. For me, I think about who has done more damage and who it will be easier to organize against um, and who it will be easier to organize under. And for me, that is where Biden-Harris becomes more compelling in terms of where I'm casting my vote in November. Okay, Annalise, you want to go next? So I agree with Yara that the exposing of these serious issues has been um, a really, really important task, and it's promoted a lot of language surrounding like abolish ICE and um, reimagine Department of Homeland Security. Um, but unfortunately, like the Obama regime was the largest and harshest immigration enforcement regime. Um, they're the ones that originally started jailing children. Um, and whilst like he does have like a mixed uh, legacy in terms of immigration, because he does have DACA, which I think saved around 750,000 um, children, which is amazing. There were also millions that were deported, millions that were placed in cages, and also the like fines, the increasing of fines for immigrants in terms of like people who were to employ them, healthcare officials that were sent to take care of them was like the harshest it's been since I believe Ronald Reagan. So I think that coincidentally, whilst obviously I'm not a fan of Trump, I think one of the most helpful things of the Trump presidency is to expose the tendency of this specific regime in terms of its treatment in these facilities and in jails and prisons in general. Um, I, I don't really believe that, at least for me personally, as somebody who's been organizing against this for a long time, more people have shown up um, to anti-ICE protests than ever before since Trump became president and since these issues became on the forefront. And I remember in like 2012 when it was me and like eight other people outside of the federal building protesting. And now like it's full. 
So um, I, I think it's a, it's a curious situation. Um, I want to just a, a oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, just a couple points. I, I think, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what's been said. I, again, the DHS and ICE and, and, and the horror that they've inflicted on folks is, is, is unspeakable. Um, but one thing that I think, again, kind of strengthens the notion that, um, that, that the Biden administration may do some, some real positive work on this, as I mentioned before, there's going to be a whole slew of progressive issues that's going to be presented to them, um, to the next administration, whoever it is. If it's Biden, then some will be compromised away, some won't. The fact that Trump has brought so much attention to this immigration issue and that it's top of mind for so many people, I think will kind of force the Biden hand into putting forth more progressive policies like that family case management program that I mentioned, which is, again, proof that it, it can be done and we can kind of start to reimagine a new system. And I think another thing that, that we haven't really talked about is the fact that we're not just electing a person, we're electing the entire staff that comes with them. Um, and so if we look at like a, a Stephen Miller, for example, who is really out to get migrants, I mean, it, 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 it's almost it's frightening really to look at their record of, of what they've done to asylum seekers um, and immigrants generally in the country, even those that are here have employed through H-1B visas, et cetera, and kind of shredded apart that system. That is very much the doing of people like Steve Miller. Whereas if you look at the people that the Biden-Harris ticket is bringing on, um, you can look at, for example, like... Um, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, I, I believe is her name. She is Cesar Chavez's granddaughter um, and has been doing some, some really great work under uh, Kamala Harris's administration here in California on this issue. And so, again, the introduction of staff like that, I think, presents a case where we really do have a chance with this at, at reimagining a new system. Will DHS be dismantled in a way that is actually protecting everybody that lives in the country and, and not prioritizing white folks over people of color, um, immigrants, et cetera? Not necessarily. It's again, we're not waving a wand, but we're putting someone in place that would actually listen to us. Whereas we do not have a seat at the table. They're not coming to the door um, when we knock when it comes to the Trump administration. You know, I think that um, I'm reading through the chats and I'm listening to what you guys are all saying. And it's very interesting. I think that what, what maybe we need to, um, to make clear is that nobody's suggesting that uh, that a Biden administration will solve the problems and deal with the issues that we feel strongly about in a way that will satisfy us. In other words, either way, we are going to have to keep working as hard as we possibly can. And it's true that I think on all fronts, all progressive issues, Trump has kind of created this sense of awakening. People are much more active. People are out there. Um, like I said, I mean, all the protests, all the issues, healthcare, you know, that we're not even touching on today. There's a lot more going on because Trump is, as you know, basically scaring the life out of us. But I think it's important also to remember that uh, if there's an argument for voting for Biden, it's not to say, well, we need to vote for Biden so he's elected and then we can all go home and just, you know, grow flowers. Our work is not going to be done with a Biden administration, but our work will require just as much effort, just as much, uh, you know, keeping our voices raised so that they're, the people around him, the people that he brings in, uh, which are lots and lots of people on all, that deal with all these issues will be pushed in the right direction. I think that, I think it's important to, to clarify that, you know, we're not talking about, you know, 
uh, you know, Biden being the, the savior of progressive issues, not by any stretch of the imagination. Um, uh, but just, you know, we're going to have to work both ways very, very hard. I want to, I want to, I want to add something here that we didn't really plan on saying, but I think is related to the, the issue of immigration, which is, um, you know, this, the, 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 the wake of the Black Lives Movement, the protests that have been going on since the death of uh, uh, George Floyd, the kind of the awakening that has taken place in America um, to the treatment of, of blacks, people, people, well, people of color in general. And I think that kind of relates to the immigration issue because there is a racist component there. And uh, I want to see your take on, on uh, you know, in this context on that issue, um, on that issue as well. Um, Annalise, you want to you wanna start perhaps? Sure. So um, obviously what's going on in the wake of these protests in terms of the federal government's response is truly shocking and horrifying. I think it was last Wednesday when the article dropped that they were considering using a heat ray on protesters in Washington, D.C. That was like truly sickening, not even to say that I'm surprised because I have obvious feelings about like the government and how like sinister they are. But I think that this is truly like a, a just a shockingly low point in American history, how protesters are being treated. And I find it really unfortunate that um, the Biden-Harris campaign has, especially Joe Biden, he's come out to say like, he would jail protesters, you know, he's against socialists, he's against anarchists, he would be there reinstalling law and order. I think that was really a missed opportunity and an inappropriate opportunity when he was asked about like the Black Lives Matter movement to take it to that position. But objectively, I think that, or I can't for certain say that the response would be any different, but the one that we have now is truly horrifying. And as somebody who has been arrested during these protests and has been out there for almost like 60 days straight. Um, it's truly like, I think it's one of the lowest points like in American history in my life, like domestically. I think this is like truly terrible. Um, and that's why I think I was so disappointed when, um, when Joe Biden gave that response. Not that I was surprised by it, but I really feel like it could have gone either way because you're talking about citizens that are hitting the streets to promote the notion that black lives matter in all aspects of life. And uh, I find his response to be really lackluster. Yeah, what do you think? Um, so I think you're right, there's completely a racist component to it. And I think a huge part of the conversation about black lives matter is inherently mass incarceration. and that is something that, you know, both members of the Democratic ticket have furthered, um, which I agree with Annalise is really disappointing. Um, but I really struggle to, I think just seeing what the Trump administration has done, like in the wake of these protests has just been so like horrifying and has violated like international law numerous times and for me seeing that I my first thought is one we have to keep organizing two it won't automatically be solved under a Biden administration but that 
the Trump administration has to go. A million times over, it has to go. And for me, the only real opponent to that is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, which I'm extremely disappointed in. I am very upset that we're in this position of those are our two choices in terms of if Trump's going to go, who's going to get him out? And I think I will always be angry at that. Um, but I also have had to face that those are the two options in terms of you know who's going to become president. And for that, that is where I have had to, you know, kind of realize that I think my vote is going to go to Biden in November because Trump just has to go. And I think, you know, what you were saying earlier is right that these problems are not going to go away under Biden. And we do have to organize just as hard, if not harder, because so much of what Democrats do is actually very similar, but just hidden, you know, like they're very polite about the terror they inflict. And it makes it a lot harder to rally against because people start to ignore it. Like a lot of people get comfortable. And I think in some ways, like that's a risk going into, you know, if Biden becomes president, like will people become comfortable? Will people organize as hard? But I'm not willing to take that risk by, you know, not doing everything I can to get Trump out of office. And I think voting is just a small part of that. I think organizing is the real work and, you know, like bringing power to like the people and taking our power to the streets and like doing all the work that we can in every possible way is what's going to make change. I don't think the presidency is going to create this overarching change whatsoever. but I'd be remiss if I said it did nothing, you know, like if we managed to flip the Senate towards being Democrat, like Donald Trump would veto all progressive bills. I can't say that Joe Biden would do that. And like that for me matters. So I think it's incredibly nuanced. It's incredibly complicated. I don't think it's as simple as saying I'm going to do it or I'm going to not. Like my plan to vote for them in November has been a very long process of back and forth and acknowledging that there are so many issues that they present. But I do feel like it would be easier to organize under a Biden presidency, assuming that we organize just as hard, which again is, you know, not an easy assumption to make, nor one that I think anyone should just assume, but that possibility matters to me. I think you brought up an important issue of mass incarceration, which also just ties into the treatment of Black people in America in general. Um, black birth rates are some of the worst here. It's so dangerous to give birth as a Black woman in America. The Black quality of life is so significantly low. And I think, like you said, or what you alluded to, like voting is the least relevant form of political participation. It's one part. It could be one part if it's part of your politic, but also like organizing and pushing the notion towards exposing that America is like an illegitimate settler colonial society and 
very bound into the fabric of our existence is internal systemic racism. And that's something that we need to be pushing to abolish, to expose and abolish. And unfortunately, like you said, Kamala Harris is a big propagator of mass incarceration. Joe Biden is as well. I mean, it's really hard to find a career politician that isn't but I think it's really important in terms of this issue, like if we're really talking about Black Lives Matter, is to expose America for what it really is and understand that conditions may subjectively get better under certain circumstances, depending on who's president, most likely not, um, but to expose America for what it really is and to expose the treatment of Black people in America um, that has been the same since its conception, since they were brought here to build this country. I totally agree um, on all of that. I think for me, the way I view it is there are two approaches that are both important. And the first is the long-term approach of like, these are massive systemic issues that no president, I think in our near future is ever going to really combat. And that's up to us completely as citizens and members of this society. And like, we have to create the change. We cannot rely on the people in power to do that whatsoever. I think that these changes of uprooting these entire systems are going to take a very long time. And in the meantime, there are real people on the ground who you know, need help. And I guess this kind of goes back to what Itan was saying before with our first point about Palestine and like what we were talking about with funding for organizations that's been cut by the Trump administration. But in the short term, like these small things under some circumstances, of course they're not enough. They will never be enough, but they, they're also not nothing. And like there are real people that are impacted by losing these resources that, you know, like of course, like it's never going to be enough, but it's still something and it still matters. And like that short term, these short-term effects and these short-term changes and policies, you know, they create real impacts on people's lives where they don't solve the problems, but they make them a little easier to cope with. And I think that's still relevant, you know, of like making it like any mental relief that can come about on the way to uprooting these systemic issues matters because it's so exhausting. And, you know, like, I think, I mean, I'm saying that as someone who has a lot of privilege, you know, like I grew up around Boston, I received a higher education, like I grew up in a very progressive bubble. And my higher education was also in Massachusetts. I think like those can't be ignored. I have a lot of privilege, like within this position. And so I can't imagine for you know, people with less privilege than I, how much even more exhausting it is. And like those small changes, like I, you're right, they are only under some circumstances, but I think they still matter. And also it's a question of, I think the big question is, is getting rid of Trump the name of the game or is there something else? And I think that's exactly what defines what you, you know, what you, what you were saying, Yara. I mean, getting rid of Trump, that is the name of the game or is it not? So that's the question. Eitan, you want to jump in on this issue of the, the whole Black Lives Matter and what's been going on under, this, under the Trump administration? 
Sure. Um, and I mean, talking about the tie between immigration, DHS, and, and Black Lives Matter, we don't have to get very creative in thinking about how we we create we 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 make that tie because just recently um, to try and and quell, if you will, some of the protests that were happening in D.C., there are some reports that indicate that the Trump administration actually took ICE detainees from a completely different state, flew them to detention facilities in D.C. just as a means to get some DHS officers to D.C. during that protest. Um, and in a similar vein to what I've been talking about, uh, kind of putting a, a, you know, pushing Biden if, if he's elected on a slew of progressive issues that some will get compromised away and some won't. In the same vein, Trump is being pressured from the extreme right, um, and they are starting to think creatively about ways to implement some of these sort of, again, these like fascist tendencies. And I think the use of DHS against protesters is one of those examples um, in looking at ways that, okay, DHS has jurisdiction. If it's a port city within, I think, 100 miles, that's why they were able to, to send them to quell protesters in Portland and in some of the other cities, thinking more creatively in the way that they've, they've sent the DHS and enlisted them to quell protesters in Chicago and some of these other cities um, are incredibly, incredibly harmful things that evidence suggested that Biden would certainly have not engaged in. Um, and so I think that's kind of one strong argument for that um, is that even if, if Biden, again, and, and I agree with Annalise, that is, he had a lackluster response when it comes to, you know, his, his stance on what it's, um, you know, re-envisioning re what, what community safety looks like without policing and, and the Black Lives Matter issue generally. Um, either way, his answer and his actions are day and night compared to the Trump administration, right? I mean, we're talking about the, a Republican Party that took the two individuals that pulled out guns on nonviolent protesters and pointed them at them as they passed in front of their house, giving a, being given a platform at the Republican National Convention above some very senior Republican um, political officials uh, that, that didn't have a chance to speak at that convention, whereas, you know, Biden is at least acknowledging that there is systemic racism that we need to, to address, um, or the fact that, that, you know, Trump is, is ignoring and, and um, a lot of cases when uh, there was a victim that was a victim of police brutality that was shot, where, the, where Biden is speaking with their family, at least hearing from, at least going through the motion of doing that. And then Trump is, you know, promoting the like, the rights of the like 17 year old kid or however old he was the the white kid that that walked to the protest and, and opened fire um and so again i i'm very much in the camp of like we got to get trump out of there for some of these reasons um and then again as, as yara mentioned if we get some progressive policies that are passed granted a lot of them are going to be at the local community level but on a federal level um there's no way the trump administration is is going to to sign those into law whereas the biden administration can be pushed on the issue and, and in, in saying this, I, I don't think that, again, we, we need to be uh, organizing day in and day out. Um, we can't be excusing the, the historic actions of, the Biden, of, of Joe Biden, like the 1994 crime bill that um, had a horrible impact on Black and, and communities of color in the United States with regards to, you know, in, increasing the rates of incarceration. Um, but again, it's, it's not so Black and white. And embedded within that 94 crime bill was also the Violence Against Women Act, which does some work to try and, and empower and protect um, survivors of, of domestic violence, um, which is, you know, kind of an issue that, that we haven't talked about explicitly, whereas, you know, Trump is, is somewhat ignoring those issues. We have his, uh, his executive education making it harder for people to make um, reports of domestic violence in universities and, and Betsy DeVos. So, again, I, I think when, when, when you look at Biden next to Trump, 
Um, I, I, it's, it's day and night on, on some of these issues in a lot of ways. Um, but when you look at Biden next to the world that we want to see and want to envision on these issues, there is um, a serious gap there that we have to work really hard to fill that, that I don't think we need to excuse. But as I've said before, I, we're not waving a wand in November. We're doing like one day, one part of a long um, kind of trek of, of organizing and trying to get Trump out of the way because he's, he's enacting so many harmful policies and, and, and putting someone in power that is more likely to listen to us. Yeah, we're not waving a wand, but to wake up in the morning and not see Trump uh, president, I think is going to be, right now, it seems like it, it would take a magic wand. Uh, Jasmine, go ahead, please. I think I just, I'd like to make this point. Like, I, I agree that, you know, best case scenario in November is that Joe Biden wins uh, for reasons that we've already discussed, right? Joe Biden, horrible on immigration, but better than Trump. Joe Biden, horrible on Palestine, but better than Trump. Um, on the environment and healthcare and any other issue that you can think of almost. And in fact, yes, any other issue that you can think of, you know, Joe Biden is better than Trump. Um, you know, so like personally, like I, I do think that it is extremely important that, you know, Trump gets out of office. That said though, like on the question of what voting is about, why we vote, uh, which was introduced earlier by Nico, like, I, I would argue that voting isn't just about trying to get one person out of office. It's also, you know, in the case of this upcoming presidential election, about essentially anointing a standard bearer for the entire American left, right? Like the presidential primaries and general election of this year are about defining what the American left is and what voices in the American left are going to be heard, what voices in the American left are going to matter, and which voices aren't going to matter. And I think the problem, um, you know, in, in saying that, you know, every single left of center American should vote Biden is that that sends the message to Biden, to other politicians, to journalists, to pundits, to voters, that Biden somehow represents the American left, which he does not, right? It's, it's I think it's worth sort of remembering how Biden actually got the Democratic nomination, he, for most of the primary season, which is in the United States is very long, um, for most of the primary season, for months, was not polling well at all, anywhere, right? Super Tuesday happens, and he gets a good amount of support from a handful of states that do not represent, um, you know, the whole of the American left, Right. You know, they represent a fraction of the American left. And furthermore, there were reports that like some disgruntled Republicans, um, you know, had decided to, um, you know, had decided to participate in this year's, you know, primary elections or people with, you know, past, you know, histories of voting Republican had decided to switch over with their conservative ideologies and, and vote for Biden in the Democratic primaries. Um, and that is how a you know, a bench full of progressive candidates managed to lose to Joe Biden, like one of the most conservative people to, to actually run a campaign for president on the Democratic ticket this year. I myself was a Bernie Sanders supporter, right? But I, you know, I was someone who thought that Elizabeth Warren had a lot of good ideas, right? I would not have minded so much an Elizabeth Warren candidacy. I, I would have probably been a little excited about it for a couple reasons. Um, 
I, I might not have minded so much a Cory Booker, you know, presidency, right? There were so many progressive candidates who ran this year. And yet because of the way that our electoral system works, Joe Biden is the nominee. There, there's this expectation that, you know, left of center people have that, you know, whoever wins Super Tuesday, we're all getting behind him. And it's always a him, right? Except for in 2016 when that didn't work out. Um, you know, there, there's always, you know, this expectation that, you know, the, the sort of most centrist, most moderate candidate on the left is, or, or one of the more centrist, more moderate candidates on the left, you know, they're going to be the standard bearers for the entire American left. And that is extremely problematic for reasons that we talked about, right? The American left or the modern American left is nowhere where it needs to be on immigration. It's nowhere where it needs to be on Palestine or on healthcare or on uh, income inequality or on racial equality, right? And that, that problem whereby, you know, the, the democratic presidential candidates, the standard bearers for the American left don't represent the American left, that's not gonna change if we continue to cast ballots for like, for whoever the democratic candidate is, no matter where we live, no matter what our thoughts are, right? And this is the thing, like, I think we can take advantage of the fact that we don't live in a democracy, right? Like we, we live in a system where the people who actually elect the president, you know, they're, they're the small cadre of electors, um, you know, and, and we, can, we can rest assured that New York will go blue, Mississippi will go red. Right. If you're a progressive in Mississippi, if you're a progressive in New York, I think it is worth trying to send the message to the Democratic Party, um, you know, without forfeiting the election to Trump, that like we're not going to stand for you know the most moderate candidate always being the standard bearer for the American left. That's morally unacceptable, right? And it's not democratic. Um, you know, I, I, if that means that like all the progressives in the country have to wait until, you know, uh, an hour before the polls close, um, or, you know, if, if that means that, you know, somehow we have to uh, figure out like mail-in voting to, to make sure that, you know, the blue states go blue so that Biden does win, but that we're not, um, you know, sending this message that he has support from the entire American left, and so be it. it it's, it's a complicated, you know, tenuous sort of game trying to um, ensure that Trump doesn't win while also, you know, not giving Biden um, too much support. I understand that, like, that's not a game that everyone wants to play. But, like, I honestly don't see how we get out of this situation where, like, the, the presidential nominee for the Democratic Party, the only viable left of center party in the United States, doesn't represent the American left if we continue to cast ballots always for the Democratic candidate, no matter what. Yeah, and I'd generally- I'd like to respond to that. Go ahead, please. No, yeah, go ahead if you wanted to. No, 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 go ahead. Okay, I mean, a, a couple of points on that. I, I, I understand and I agree with the kind of problems that you set forth with the way um, our, you know, our, our election of our president operates. Um, where I disagree is that you've reduced that like, that, that the one representative of, of the American left is, is the Democratic nominee for president. I mean, I think we need to look at so many other races that have happened. We need to be looking at the House of Representatives, right? The, the AOCs, the Ilhan Omars, the Rashida Tlaibs, the, the Cory Bushes. They are, I think, the representatives of the kind of American left and are putting forth policies that, 
whoever is, is president, we want the person, we want the president to be the person that's most likely to pass those policies um, as an indicator of that. Uh, I agree that there's like a problematic way that Joe Biden won the nomination, but the reality that we're faced with right now is that he is the nominee. And I also don't think that that a, a vote in a you know a safe blue state like California for a third party candidate is really sending a message to to the Democrats of whether um, they have the support of the American left or not. I think that is more going to come from like daily volunteering and to build up the strength of like a viable third party or like volunteering our time on a daily basis for however many years to try and change the system so that it's not just a two party system. If that's the world that we want to see um, in, in this particular case, a vote not for Joe Biden, in a sense, is is quite literally a, a vote for Trump. Just be, if, if given the constraints of our current system, it's Biden or it's Trump. Um, and I also understand the argument of kind of like voting your conscience and want, wanting to vote for somebody that is much more in line with your ideals to represent us as president. Um, but kind of as, as far as the way that my conscience operates and kind of the way that I'm thinking about it. And it's, this is you know, a conclusion that I've come to now and, and I'm putting forth the fact that, that I've, I've landed on that I'll be voting for Biden and I think others should too. But it's not that I didn't wrestle with it for a long time. But thinking of, of, of certain things and certain scenarios of like, you know, how I'm looking, looking at myself and reflecting after the election, um, if I don't do everything in my power to get Trump out of office, I think I'll be kind of disappointed with myself. And in, in having conversations with people like, um, you know, migrants that have been forced to wait on the very, very dangerous, um, you know, poor parts of Mexico instead of being allowed into the United States to seek asylum. I mean, I've spoken with families in cities like Matamoros, which is one of the most dangerous and violent cities in, in the country of Mexico. Um, and in, in talking with families after the election, assuming that, that I'll be back there at some point, um, I don't know that I'll be able to look at myself if I didn't do everything in power to uh, try and make it so that there are not, there's not a president putting forth policies that is going to land them in a city like that when they've come to the United States to seek protection. Now, if that alternative is the fact that they're going to be detained in immigration detention, honestly, that is better than being homeless in Matamoros. Um, and so I think it's just kind of like countless stories like that. And the fact that kind of the, the constraints of our system currently, where I think that, that you know, a vote for Biden is, is, is important, especially in this particular election. If I could, though, push back on the idea that a vote for someone other than Biden is a vote for Trump, I think given how polarized we are in this country and given like the near zero likelihood that a state like Mississippi is going to allocate any electors to someone other than Trump, like I, I think the claim that a vote for no Biden is a vote for Trump just doesn't make sense in the context of how our electoral system works. Let's be real progressives in Mississippi, you have no influence over who's going to win the general election this year. None. Mississippi's electors will go to Donald Trump. Unless Donald Trump dies or decides to stop running, Mississippi will go red, right? And again, I think that gives people a lot of freedom to do other things with their vote. And I think, you know, you make a good point about the president not being, you know, the only sort of representative of the Democratic Party, but I think, you know, particularly when people around the world uh, think about what the American left is, they do look at the president, right? I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure if people around the world, you know, would be paying close attention to how many votes were cast for third party candidates, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, you know, but I, I I do think that, you know, there's a chance that progressives can send a message with their votes um, this year 
that like the electoral regime that we have right now for president is absolutely unacceptable. Um, and the fact that Joe Biden, who doesn't seem to be many people's first choice for president, who doesn't seem to represent this sort of synthesis of you know, the, the many ideas about what we should do with the country on the left um, you know, is like, we need to send the message or, or at least try to send the message uh, to um, the pundit class, to the world, to ourselves, um, that like this is this is unacceptable. Our, our electoral regimes, the, the fact that Biden is the nominee, um, and I, I think because of the really weird and horrible way that our electoral system works, we have an opportunity to do that. So, Jasmine, I guess can just I to clarify one point, just to clarify, sorry, one point about the vote against. Um, I, I think normally I totally agree. Like, if you're progressive and you're Mississippi and you're voting for a Democratic president, um, like your, your vote's not going to matter because of the way that the electoral, electoral system is set up. But we currently have a president that I don't think it's that far-fetched to think that if he lost the electoral count but won the popular vote, would do everything in his power to hang into it and, and not leave the office. Um, do we know if that's going to happen or not? We, we don't. But again, he's exhibited some fascist tendencies, and I don't think that's totally ridiculous um, to imagine. And so I think it's all the more important that we in a popular vote count, you know, and looking at the popular vote, he's going to look at his and Biden's realistically. Um, and so the less likely, the, the more that we can reduce the likelihood of that happen, of that happening, the better, in my opinion. Um, and so that's, that's, I guess, my point about the, the Trump thing, but, but I, I hear you on the others. So um, I think, I think, I think it's a, uh, I agree with you, Jasmine. I think the whole notion that somehow, first of all, the Democratic Party is left is 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 a little ridiculous because it's not left. I mean, it's left in relative to in American terms, but it's really not left. And certainly, saying Biden and left in the same sentence is 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 absurd. I don't. Think, I think that's that's not a that's not an expectation that anybody has. Um, but uh, no, I think the two the two of you just really raised. I, I think you raised some. This is this is exactly the heart of the of the um, issue that progressives are struggling with. This is exactly you know these two. This is exactly why we're having this conversation because it's exactly um, you know you want to be able to look at yourself in the in the mirror the next morning after you voted, and um, this is going to be very very difficult. We're we're we're. I, I, I want to move on to the next issue, which is the environment, which is also extremely important. And also there's big there's differences here, or let's discuss what the differences are. Um, and maybe do this one just a little bit quicker because we're, we're just running a little bit late. So, um, and at least you want, or Jasmine, you want to start on the, on the environment issue? So I, on the issue of the environment, I, um, I'm extremely pessimistic about um, the possibility of the United States federal government implementing uh, the sorts of the sorts of policies that we need uh, to to decarbonize by 2050. I I I'm very pessimistic that we're going to decarbonize by 2050, and I don't like being pessimistic. But um, the reason why I'm pessimistic is because like decarbonizing by 2050, meeting our our Paris goals. Um, our Paris Agreement goals, like that is going to take a lot of congressional action. There's only so much the president can do. Um, and I, from the analysis that I've seen, it's not likely that Democrats are going to retake the Senate this year. 
And even if they do retake the Senate this year by some miracle, and they also, you know, keep the House, um, you know, I, two years probably is not enough uh, to implement the massive re reforms that we need uh, to meet our Paris Agreement goals or, or something resembling our Paris Agreement goals. Um, you know, and furthermore, like, even if, like, uh, let's, let's say that Democrats do manage to pass, like, this, you know, wonderful Green New Deal, uh, you know, all the details are hammered out, um, you know, next year, that, that's an unrealistic scenario, but, like, even if it came true, like, Republicans could dismantle it as soon as they take power again. So I, I, I hope and pray that states can, can do some really ambitious things to decarbonize. Um, I know New York State um, implemented legislation recently with some fairly ambitious uh, climate goals. They're, we're still figuring out how to implement that. You know, I myself am part of a coalition uh, with Syracuse DSA to try to, um, you know, move to 100% renewable public power, for example. I, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic about that um, effort, you know, actually achieving 100% renewable public power um, at some point in the next decade, two decades, right? Um, but I just, I don't see where the United States is going to get to where we need to be on the climate, you know, through federal legislation. And furthermore, um, like this, this really is my position on a lot of issues, like on policing, on um, the climate, even on electoral change, right? I think a lot of progressive change has to happen at the local and state levels. Um, because of the way that like the U.S. federal constitution works and because of because Republicans essentially are guaranteed some degree of uh, control over the federal government or a very considerable degree of control over the federal government, um, because the country is polarized and because the Electoral College and the Senate, um, you know, they privilege rural white voters. Like, I, I think our only hope for the next few years is state and local action. And I think we should all pray or, or hope, whatever we want to do, that somehow by like maybe 2030, um, you know, climate denial has more or less died in this country. If it doesn't, like, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. So you don't think it matters on this issue who people vote? In other words, Trump, Biden, that, that is, is not a relevant... Uh... I, I think that, you know, Biden can do things like restore, I think it was like a, the Clean Air Act that Obama implemented. You know, Obama definitely, um, you know, implemented some policies that moved us toward, uh, you know, ditching coal and, and, and uh, decarbonizing just in general. Uh, he implemented, uh, you know, under his administration, we did join the Paris, you know, agreement. This is all important. Um, but like, when it comes to actually enforcing the, the climate policies that we need uh, over the next 30 years, I, I don't think that it's going to happen at the federal level. So no, I don't think it matters much who we elect um, in November. It, I think it does matter to some extent. Again, Biden is much better than Trump, but um, it's any sort of federal action, I think over the next decade at least is going to be woefully inadequate. So. Yeah, at least pick it up. 
Jasmine, I think it's important to note that the United States military is one of the largest climate polluters in history. And it's also important to note, and something we haven't really talked about is the United States effect on other countries, like on this specific issues, countries the least responsible for the climate crisis face the most serious conditions of food scarcity and various other maladies associated with the climate crisis. And the leading scientists have said like, we don't have time for incremental change. Like, so voting or a Biden ticket necessarily isn't going to whether or not it's better or worse than Trump, is it going to provide the immediate response that we need? And I'm dubious myself of Biden defunding the military, which, like I said, is the largest polluter, the largest climate polluter in history. Um, so I agree with Jasmine. Hey, Tom. Um, again, I think similar to the others who talked about, we have solving the issue completely in the way that we want to see it. And then we have the incremental change of looking at the reality that it's going to be Joe Biden or Donald Trump in the White House at the end of January. Um, I think to, I, I, I agree about, about the, you know, war is as bad for the pollution. It's the worst thing we do for the environment on a regular basis, the way we fly the planes, the fighter jets, the bombs, the, you know, the, the weapons, etc. cetera. Uh, but I think to, to put Biden and, and Trump in the, in the same uh, bucket when it comes to climate change, I think is, is a little ridiculous because one is denying that it's happening and ignoring scientists. The other is doing, I mean, to use Jasmine's word, it's, you know, woefully inadequate given what we need to do, but at least he is a part of the conversation. At least Joe Biden is acknowledging that, right, he, he said as part of our pandemic response, um, which again, we haven't talked about the pandemic, talked about ignoring scientists and the way that Trump has, has, has done that and is the reason that we're all still in our homes while countries like Italy, France, um, have, have, have been relatively reopened, but back to climate change, he's acknowledged that part of his kind of like rebuilding from the pandemic is going to include some climate measures. Are they going to be adequate enough to, to, to put us on a path to, to kind of keeping the, the planet inhabitable for humans? Not necessarily, but it is a demonstration that he's going to be listening to scientists, that he's going to do something about it rather than actively suppressing efforts um, to, to mitigate climate change as is something that I think is, is really important to acknowledge, um, you know, as, as inadequate as it might be, right? It's, it's not like he's putting forth things like we need to reimagine the way we, you know, our meat industry and the carbon impact of, of our meat and our dairy and, and, and all of that. Um, but is it way, way better than what we're seeing from the Trump administration? Absolutely. Just to clarify though, I, my argument about the sort of inevitable inadequacy of a Joe Biden administration on climate issues, it doesn't really have to do with Joe Biden's climate policy. It has to do with the powers of the presidency. Um, you know, a Joe Biden, any president who takes office over the next few years is going to be constrained in his ability to address climate change. Very, very severely constrained. Um, it's Congress. If, if, if the federal government is going to take the lead on climate change, it's Congress that has to do most of the work unless we want, you know, a president to vastly, vastly expand uh, his powers over domestic policy, which is not good, um, in my opinion. And furthermore, like, you know, we also have a, you know, a Supreme Court that's not, um, you know, that, that's probably not going to support the vast expansions of presidential power that would be required, um, you know, to achieve uh 
you know, really ambitious uh, climate policy through, you know, the, the office of the president alone, right? So my, my argument that we need to focus on the states right now has to do with the fact that, like, the presidency just really doesn't have the power to address climate change in the way that it needs to be addressed. And Congress is, is not going to address the problem because Republicans, it, it's not as though Republicans are going to remain the minority party in both the Senate and the House for the next 10 years. It's, that's highly, highly uh, unrealistic. Um, and, you know, just for my work on like public power in the state of New York, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of like, uh, energy policy is made at the state level anyway, right? Like utilities, they're regulated, at least in New York, at the state level. I, you know, I'm not sure, you know, what powers the federal government would have to change the way that um, energy is regulated at the state level uh, in New York. But like, you know, there, there's a very clear window in the state of New York uh, to change the way that, you know, we produce power to, you know, power our homes and our businesses, et cetera. So, you know, that's, that's the reason why I'm saying don't depend on the presidency. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree that we can't put all of our, our marbles in, in the bucket of the presidency, but if like the, a Green New Deal type of thing passed, which again, it's not going to solve all of our problems, but it's a, certainly a step way towards the right direction, the Trump administration is not going to sign it, the Biden administration would. So I think that speaks to some of the power that it would have. I don't disagree that so much more needs to happen on a local state you know, community level. Um, but I mean, we're here talking about Biden versus Trump, right? So I suppose that that's why I was saying within those constraints. And when it comes to the two, I mean, it's, I think there's hardly a comparison. I agree. Um, I think everyone's made a lot of really good points. And I think where I stand is, I do kind of agree with Etan on this, where I think like, Jasmine, you're right, it is, like, we can't rely on the presidency, but in terms of veto power, like, that is important. Like, Etan is right, in my opinion, where if the Green New Deal does pass, like, Trump will veto it, and Biden will not, you know? Like, he, I think, has already, you know, shown support towards that on his platform, and again, we shouldn't give too much credit to platforms, but I don't think that's irrelevant either. And also, for me, it's thing that, like, who was the head of the EPA going to be? Like, is it going to be a climate change denier, or will it be someone who actually, you know, believes scientists? And, you know, it really shouldn't be that we're reduced to make that kind of choice, but we have been, and we do have to choose between a climate denier and not. And, you know, like, again, we have to acknowledge that Democrats have not been perfect on this, especially when it comes to Native rights in this country. Like, Native people in this country have, like, they have always known how to preserve the land, and they did it. And then, you know, the, Annalise, you're right. The U.S. as a settler colonial state came in and ruined it, which is why we're seeing all these fires in California. And, you know, Obama did, you know, promote the Dakota Access Pipeline. And that can't be ignored either. You know, like, I think we do have to acknowledge that a Biden presidency would not be perfect with this whatsoever. But I think it's too important. And like a, where we, for me, like that has been the biggest push to vote for Biden is because of the environment and because I don't want a climate change denier as one as our president and two as head of the EPA. I think those, that is extremely important. And 
like any of these issues, it is going to fall to the people to push for this and to create actual change by organizing, you know, in our local, on our state levels and so on. But like the world also looks to the U.S. on how it handles climate change and like Trump being in power and like putting the people he has put in power to handle it has sent an abysmal message to the rest of the world that says like you don't have to care because we don't and not that the u.s should have this much say but unfortunately it does and like i don't think that can be ignored either okay i think uh we can open it up for um for q a jamil you want to jump in and um get that started let's see what people have to say or ask yeah yeah definitely Okay, so this is an email question that came through. It's anonymous. Um, what influence will the progressive wing of the party, um, so they're talking about AOC, Rashida, Ilhan, um, have on the Biden administration? Will they have to succumb to what Pelosi and Schumer want, or will there be progress on particular issues? Let's go all around. At least once you start, and we'll go all around. Each one, go ahead and say your piece. Yeah, and you're muted. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I'm not really hopeful. I don't honestly believe that they'll have such a significant impact um, to dictate or to steer the narrative in any kind of specific way. Obviously, they're a, a large minority, and even still, a lot of their... Um, a lot of their progressive takes on things like just simply like aren't progressive enough if we're talking like certain issues of human rights and things like that. But I don't believe that they'll have some sort of um, atypical power over a really conservative Democrat president presidency. I don't think they'll be significantly impactful. Yara, what do you think? Um. I do kind of agree with that analysis. I don't think that, like, and I also want to just put Ayanna Presley's name out there, too. I'm noticing when we're, like, talking about that, like, that group of, you know, progressive politicians, like, I want to include her name because she's done a lot as well. Um, I don't think that they alone will be able to, you know, like, sway the presidency, but I do think that they still have a lot of impact, you know, like, I, it is really amazing to see Palestine so forcefully being brought to the floor of the house. And, you know, I think they're representative of, you know, like what a lot of leftists like want to see. And, you know, like, of course they're not perfect. They're not everything. Again, you know, like we can say this over and over, we can't rely on our elected officials, but I do think they still matter. And, you know, I think they're representative of, you know, what a growing population of people want and, they are bringing those issues up, you know, where they weren't before. And they're really adamant about bringing those issues up. And I think that can't be ignored either. I agree with you. I think they're definitely representative of like this faction in the ruling class. And I am like interested to see how that goes because as it stands, they are, you know, atypical Democrats, just like Bernie Sanders gaining the popularity that he gained. That was a true indicator of like, the sickness of neocolonialism in general and like paved a way for like a new place in American politics. So I think their existence is very interesting. Jasmine? I am much more pessimistic. I'm sorry. 
Um, I, what I was just doing was I was um, Googling like House Progressive Caucus because I wanted to see how many people are in the House Progressive Caucus. Um, I'm looking at like the page that immediately comes up when you Google it. And it seems as though there are like 95 members of the House Progressive Caucus in the House. Um, I, I, I would love for someone to fact check me on that. Um, but like my concern is like, and I'll use my own personal experience as an example. I'm a progressive, right? In fact, I'm, I'm a little bit more than a progressive, but like I'm a progressive, you know, let's, let's for the sake of this argument, call me a progressive. There are lots of progressive people in my hometown of Syracuse. Again, you know, my hometown of Syracuse, generally progressive, like most cities in the United States, but because of the way that congressional districts are sort of cut in New York State and around the country, uh, I, I essentially don't have a representative in Congress. Like my, my congressman is a Republican, John Katko, he's one of the moderate Republicans. Um, I used to think that I could sway him on issues. I genuinely don't think that I can at this point, even with like a coalition behind me. Um, like I, even if the number of progressives grows in this country, and I do think that it is growing, like that doesn't mean that progressivism is going to be represented in Congress, right? AOC, it's worth remembering, represents a super solidly progressive district. Right, she's out of New York City, like solidly progressive her district. Um, you know, I, I think the same can sort of be said of Pramila Jayapal. Um, my my concern is that like Joe Biden and you know the the sort of old guard and the Democratic Party, Schumer, Pelosi, etc. They won't have to listen so much to progressive voices because like you know, place-based voting and, and the way that districts are designed in the country means that progressives can have their voices drowned out by more moderate people, more moderate people on the left and also just conservatives, right? So I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know how much influence like the progressive people in, in Congress will have over other democratic federal politicians. I, I'm pessimistic. Hey, um, well, while I agree that I don't think the progressive wing has all the answers to all the issues that we're talking about, I'm, I'm actually a little bit more optimistic. I'm as optimistic as I've ever been in their ability to sway. And I think that, that, I mean, there's an example for each of the issues that we talked about. If you look at some of the legislation that the House has put forth. Um, so climate, right? They're, they're leading on the Green New Deal, which again, we mentioned is not perfect. It's not all the answers that we want but it's as progressive a new deal as we've seen, and it's being led by these progressives in the House being put forth. Um, if we're looking at immigration, the House already passed a DACA bill that would create a pathway to citizenship for uh, undocumented folks. Um, that's great, that's super progressive. That's another example of them pushing the House to do that. Um, Palestine, we talked about the, uh, the, the, the Representative McCollum bill, with the, you know, and, and the way that that has, has been put forth, it hasn't been passed yet, but it's being a, a significant part of the conversation. Um, these progressive folks that we've mentioned, they support BDS. I think that's, that, that's strong. I mean, again, it's not perfect. It hasn't moved very far, but I'm hopeful for it. And as far as their, their ability to push and sway um, some of the other folks in the Democratic Party, I think, again, going back to the environment, the fact that Kamala Harris recently jumped on the Green New Deal bandwagon um, didn't initially proves that they can be swayed in that direction uh, and, and pulled by the progressive 
uh, wing of the party to do it. Because at the end of the day, I mean, these are politicians. They're, they're going to listen. They can be pressured, especially in the in the progressive direction. So I'm again, I, I don't again, I don't think they have all of the answers. I'm not going to solve all the problems, but I'm as hopeful as I've ever been. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. You know, obviously the the the, uh, the political system in America is 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 it's difficult. It's a difficult nut to crack. Um, but we've seen uh, we've seen a few, a, a few cases in, in the primaries where very progressive, radically progressive, uh, or what would be considered radically progressive in American politics, um, um, candidates have beaten incumbents that have been, you know, these white, crusty, you know, conservative you know, politicians that have been, you know, become part of the scenery, you know, for decades, and they've just been kicked out, which was great to see. So again, if there's any hope, then there's hope there. And the hope is, of course, that these tendencies would somehow grow and force, you know, force the, uh, those that are actually have executive powers to, um, to change policy and to act on that. What's next, Jamil? We have other questions? Yeah. So this question is from Marina. The question is, I feel both tickets are just as bad in terms of Palestine, but Trump will be a disaster for the country and the world in so many ways. I think that Biden may be more pressurable on Palestine before and after the election, but how do we effectively do that? How do we effectively do that? Let's go around quickly. It's anyone to start and we'll go back the other way. Um... I think we effectively do that by, um, you know, continuing to listen to the Palestinians that are most impacted, right? The continuing to push forth with BDS, continuing to raise awareness of the fact that, um, that, that, that they're undergoing, you know, that they're living under occupation and what that actually means, continuing to talk about the siege on Gaza. Um, I think storytelling is always a really powerful tool for that. Uh, but then I also think that, that a really important part is, is, um, you know, we, we're, we're facing a really tough battle in that because of the amount of money, power, and influence that the kind of the Israeli lobby has. Um, and so part of that could be starting with, like, um, you know, the, the, the combating the, the conflation between anti-Semitism and criticism of Israeli policy is really important, um, kind of taking it one piece at a time and just continuing with the, the narratives that, that we have. Yara? Um, for me, I think part of it definitely includes moving the embassy out of Jerusalem. I think that is incredibly important and like to not acknowledge Jerusalem as the capital is of Israel. But also like, I think it goes so beyond just Biden. Like I think it includes like showing up for Palestinians, you know, through money, through protests, through petitions, I mean, through anything that we can do, like, we have to do it. We have to show up for Palestinians. And I think that also means, you know, like, voting in our local elections. And, like, we're seeing that by having Palestinian women, like, in the House. You know, I think that is huge, you know, being like, if you want to talk against Palestinians, you're talking against a United States elected official. I think that actually you know, like has a really large impact. And there are so many things we can do that, you know, other people could go into far more detail on, but I do still think it's possible. Jasmine? I 
I think the prospect of the Black Lives Matter movement and the U.S. decarceration movement and criminal justice reform movement um, doing a lot of good work to change people's attitudes on Palestine is really, really good. Um, to be quite honest, I don't have a lot of faith that we're going to be able to change re most Republicans or most conservatives' views on Israel-Palestine. I think at this point, this country is too polarized for us to really move the needle in the next decade or two um, for the right on Palestine. But I do think that there is a lot of room for, um, for moving the needle on Palestine for the left. I think it is possible for us in the next decade or two um, to get the left in the United States to a point where like, it's pretty rare and pretty um, unacceptable uh, to be, for any solution to uh, you know, the, the human rights atrocity in Palestine, farther to the right of, and the settlements, um, and like either produce some sort of like a Palestinian state or um, you know, make the state of Israel a secular state uh, with an aspiration toward equal rights. And that, that struggle is going to take a long time, but you know, that, that's the aspiration. Um, so yeah, I, I think that Black Lives Matter activists need to take the lead. Um, you know, indigenous rights activists need to take the lead. Feminists need to take the lead. And I know we're all like, I know we're all dealing with like, lots of problems on our own at this point and it's a lot to like take on another cause but it's important obviously you know for us to stand in solidarity with palestine and to go beyond solidarity to make it clear in the united states that there is no support for blm without support for palestine there is no support for feminism without support for palestine there's no support for any progressive cause for marginalized people <laughs> without support for palestine i think that's how we make progress here yeah uh, at least your turn. Jasmine, I agree with you wholeheartedly, at least for me. What my opposition will be if Biden gets elected is the same thing it always will be. Like, I want myself and all people who are fighting for people around the world, marginalized folks around the world against U.S. imperialism, is to hit the streets and make Joe Biden answer for this stuff. We've seen Trump address these things consistently on television all the time. And that's something we need to do with Biden too, just because we get a democratic president, it doesn't believe all of a sudden, or it doesn't mean all of a sudden that black lives matter here. It doesn't mean that there's gonna be international solidarity with struggling folks and marginalized folks all around the world that are being crushed by US sanctions and US imperialism. So my plan will consistently be to agitate, educate and organize the same as it's always been. Like I'm fighting against one machine regardless of who's in the driver's seat. Um, and that is like the United States war machine. So it'll be the same. And I would hope that other progressive folks similarly fall in line. Like I don't think Biden deserves a comfortable presidency without question. I don't think he deserves people, you know, I don't think voting should be our only form of dissent as people who identify as progressives in the United States. Yeah, all of you, that's great. I agree with all of you. That was brilliant. I, I want to add just one more thing. If, if people want to look at previous events, pre previous panels that we've had, we've dealt with all the various issues or some of the various issues uh, where the Zionist influence is really, really, really set and very, very strong. 
Uh, one was the education and, and the textbooks in public schools and how they influence that. So we had a, we had, we had a couple of panels about that. Um, just how influential they are in local politics. People usually think of the Zionist, the Israeli lobby, as a bunch of people up in you know Washington D.C. lobbying you know members of Congress. You should look at every race, every local race, city council, state legislature. They are there. Every mayor, every ra you know race for sheriff. I mean, they are there, making sure that their voice is heard and their point of view is 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 the is the is the dominant one. So there's, that is, I think, where people absolutely need to look if they want to, if they want to make a change and, um, and definitely not make Biden or any, actually, any elected officials, um, um, time in office comfortable. I think that's definitely something we should make sure never, never happens. All right, let's go. What's next? Maybe do, a, I'm sorry, somebody want to add something? Yeah, I'd just like to add really quickly. Um, I completely agree with Annalise and Jasmine and, um, Miko, I actually work with the National Arab American Women's Association, so I um, have coworkers that have appeared on those panels, and a lot of our work has been on the U.S. education system and, you know, actually changing textbooks and school resources to not be biased against Palestinians and Palestine specifically. A lot of these resources can say the word Palestinians, but are completely barred from saying the word Palestine, which is a huge problem that you know i think it's really important to address these starting in education to talk about palestine in education to you know go against these biases and these myths against palestinians as terrorists young like teach children that palestinians are not terrorists that they are not horrible people that they are victims of a genocide of ethnic cleansing and that there is much more to israel than just a jewish state it goes so far beyond that. It is an apartheid state, and I think it's so important to confront that early on through education. It is a long game, and it has to start young, and I think that's a huge approach. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Pop culture can play a really big role in sort of like moving the needle on Palestine as well. So like, you know, queer artists, artists of color in particular, like I think they can pick up a lot of the slack. And you know, and 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 the, and the resources are there. There's a great book which I have, not next to me right now, unfortunately. Um, it's called Palestine: A Four Thousand Year History, uh, by Nuna Salha, Palestinian, really well-known Palestinian historian. And he shows very clearly Pal this country was called Palestine was called Palestine for four thousand years by Aristotle, by by Herodotus, by by you know major Greek and 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 and. Uh, uh, Roman historians and philosophers and writers who visited, who wrote about it, and then one day in May of 1948, boom, gone, forgotten. It became Israel, and from that moment on, and when you look at at uh, social studies textbooks in America in public schools, none of that exists. It's only the only narrative that exists is the Zionist narrative. So that's I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Yara. That's right. I actually knew that you work with them, and that's uh, tremendously important work. And that's exactly where where I think people need to uh, to look at. Um, should we do one more question, Jamil, and then wrap it up? It's already one o'clock. Yeah, yeah, we'll do one more. Um, this one is about uh, climate, so we can end on that. Um, this one is from uh, Farah Mars. The question is, uh, is there any hope to resolve the ecological crises resulting from the normal functioning of global capitalism as a system without engaging in massive disrupt disruptive actions that go beyond the traditional notions of organizing? 
Um, don't we have to be disruptive and anti-capitalist and soon? An intense no, question. That's, that's pretty intense. Yeah. Who wants to jump in first? Any volunteers? No volunteers. Okay, I'll pick them. Jasmine, why don't you go first? I'll be very honest. Like, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot over the last few months. Like, um, I think just for me personally, I think if you think about the, the task of addressing climate change um, in terms of like, in, in terms of like, you know, in, in these grandiose terms, like, you know, we have to defeat capitalism, we have to do this, we have to do that. It seems like really daunting, right? Uh, when, when you think of, you know, the, the task of addressing climate change is first and foremost, like an anti-capitalist task. I think at least for me, it becomes very scary, right? But when we actually think about specific policy solutions um, to address climate change, I think the task of addressing climate change becomes a lot easier. Um, so like, uh, for example, I'll, I'll use the Public Power Coalition in New York State as an example. Um, you know, public power is definitely not, <laughs> it's not a, a, an economic arrangement that most people would consider capitalist. Um, but, you know, the bills that uh, the New York State Public Power Coalition are introducing, um, and they're, they're different bills with like very significant differences, um, like they offer like more or less specific pathways toward both like 100% renewables and like an end to uh, private ownership, private for-profit ownership of utilities. Um, so I think in that sense, you know, if we can get excited about like policy details and in particular about like the nitty gritty of policy, if we can all, and I do mean all, become policy experts, become policy wonks and, you know, get excited about like learning about policy experiments, um, ongoing policy experiments, past policy experiments um, that have, you know, that have created good change, that have um, led to less carbon emissions that have, you know, made energy more accessible, etc. If, if we can actually focus on policy solutions that are out there, um, and, and the policy solutions are out there, people are working on them, you just have to Google them. I, I think that's how we move forward with this, just by talking about and being excited by specific policies. Excellent. Yara? Um, I think it's a huge question. I think the short answer is yes, we do need to do it and soon. I completely agree with Jasmine. Climate change is enormously a capitalist issue. Um, in terms of how to do it, I also get it feels really daunting to me too, especially because as a consumer, like there's only so much that I can do. You know, like so much of climate change is caused by globalization, by denying indigenous people the right to manage the land, by allowing corporations to pollute the way we do. And as a consumer, capitalism is such a trap because it is so hard to act outside of it. Like if you, you know, only have so much money and Amazon has things cheaper than anywhere else, like it makes sense in that respect to order from Amazon, but Amazon is doing awful things for our climate and they're not paying for it whatsoever. So I think 
in that sense, it's really difficult, you know, as a consumer to feel like there is that much I can do. And, but at the same time, I feel like there is also like an obligation to do it, you know, whether it's meaningful or not to take those steps anyways, I think still matters, you know, wherever we can, but I do kind of agree there does need to be, you know, like mass pressure and mass uprising against climate change that, you know, like is organized, is strategic to push, you know, like our elected politicians who can actually enact policy to the left on climate change, which I think has been happening with some success, but I do think it needs to be even more. I think it does need to be more strategic, more planned out to exist in the long term. Um, but that is very forceful on creating, you know, green policy very soon. Yeah, and Liz? So I obviously think, well, single-handedly capitalism is responsible for this current climate crisis. I mean, just like from a short-term, it's a short-termism perspective. It's a lot cheaper for companies to do what they will with the waste that they accrue than to invest in new technologies that help assist like the planet in a more effective way. And the most like obvious approach is to create like a systemic change to fight for something else outside of this capitalistic machine. Because unfortunately, so even in the political spectrum, big business has like a huge hold and a huge pull on our political spectrum. And if that rings true, then the notion that climate change can be defeated or tackled isn't, isn't really legitimate. It's not a like wholly thought out analysis when a lot of our politicians are being bought out or are donating to like certain candidates or certain candidates projects in various different places. But wholeheartedly, you know, we're seeing things um, that we've never seen before in terms of environmental decay and destruction and single-handedly capitalism is to blame objectively. Okay, and Eitan, the final word. Before we go. Um. Well, I, I think this is a big question. We could probably have a whole panel discussion just on this question. Uh, but I mean, in, in short, yeah, capitalism is horrible for the environment. Uh, it's something that we are complicit in in our daily lives, the clothes we wear, the food we eat, and you know, the fact that, that our systems are such that we're not even thinking about the person that picked the tomatoes on our sandwich or the person that uh, picked the cotton in our clothes, et cetera. Uh, that lack of transparency and that that's not seen as like a, a cost of what we're buying is, is a huge problem. Um, and I think in that battle to, you know, change, you know to, to save, to, to keep the planet inhabitable by humans, um, you know, I, I don't say save the planet, you know, the planet's going to be okay without us. It's more that the humans won't be able to, to survive on it if it continues in the direction that it is. Um, as we continue to organize that, I guess, to, to bring us back to kind of the topic of, of the panel, um, in who we choose for president, I think it kind of brings back the idea of, of putting someone into power and voting for someone, hopefully electing somebody that is going to be, uh, you know, pressurable on these issues, that is that is least likely to get in our way, so to speak, um, as we try to, to, to imagine this this world that we create. And I think if we look at some of the most vocal, um, you know, loud, consistent voice, anti-capitalist voices, um, 
they've largely endorsed Joe Biden, right? If you look at like the Angela Davis at the Cornell West, they're talking about how we need to be, you know, getting Trump out of office, getting Biden in office so that we can pressure him on some of these policies. And so I guess that's, uh, that's my take on that. And, you know, um, like I think you've all said, we gotta be out there. We, somebody in the chat said, you know, we're already working so hard, how much more can we do? I think it's about, whether it's Palestine or any other issue, it's really just about organizing more and spreading the word and, 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 and getting more people involved and getting more people, uh, like you guys said, excited about it and people who care about it to come out and to understand what it is that they need to do. Um, and that is not going to change. And uh, either way, we need to be out there organizing, working, uh, and, 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 and working smart and, and, and adding more and more people to the circle of progressives because it's quite ridiculous that progressive is somehow uh, considered somehow radical, you know, whereas progressive is really people who care about other people and care about the environment and care about justice. So that's really where we want to bring more, more, more people in to understand that, and then to work as hard as as they can and as hard as we can to bring about the change that we need. Uh, look, I can't thank you guys enough. I love you guys. This was an absolutely brilliant uh, conversation. Uh, exceeded, I think, any expectations that anybody had about this. Uh, so thank you again so much for your time, for your you know being so articulate and 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 you know thinking about these things and expressing yourself so well and knowing so much. Um, this was really invaluable stuff. We're going to have this, of course, it's going to be on, uh, on YouTube. It's going to be on micopella.com so people come and refer to it and listen to it later on. Uh, Yara, Jasmine, Annalise, Eitan, um, thank you again so, so much. You guys are absolutely terrific. Jamil and Michael, thank you guys for your help. And um, we'll see you all soon. Thank you. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.